Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. I'm having so much more fun now. I have let them show me how to live their way. This is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 240. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners, get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com. That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack, and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and the Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. I plan to go on Charles F. Rosene's Magical History Tour in 2024, and here is Charles to talk about it. Hey, hey, this is Charles Rosene, sometime guest here on the Fun Ideas podcast. Have you ever thought of taking a Beatles tour to Liverpool? Well, I host and organize the Magical History Tour every summer, www.liverpooltours.com. But I'm here to tell you about two other things. My books! Yes, Mark isn't the only author. I've recently published the book of Top Ten Beatles Lists, where 64 celebrities gave their top ten favorite Beatles-themed lists with reasons why. And illustrations and photos and all kind of fun stuff. Please check it out, www.bookoftop10beatleslists.com. It's the follow-up to www.bookoftop10horrorlists.com, where a hundred celebrities gave their favorite horror lists. Enjoy the upcoming show, and thank you for listening to my ad. Buy your Christmas and holiday gifts now. Why not Stars of the Walt Disney Productions? Or how about Pac-Man, the first animated TV show based upon a video game? Or the revised and updated Looking for the Good Times Monkey book? Or one of 15 other books written by Mark Arnold? All are available through Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and most through Bear Manor Media. Unconditionally Mad and Not Just Happy Together is still being formatted, and both should see publication in 2024. I am currently at work on an article about Mr. Weatherby, and am working on my TV animation book, 
and another monkey's book, and a book on Marvel's Crazy Magazine. More on that later. On today's show, we have a returning guest to discuss his participation in the commentary for Rankin Bass's Santa Claus is Coming to Town and the music of Rankin Bass. Here he is, Greg Airbar, Part 1. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and here's yet another Fun Ideas podcast. And I have a special returning guest. We've talked about Willy Wonka before on this show, and I think a long time ago we talked about something else, probably Hanna-Barbera. And... uh, (laughs) Um, on a different podcast, I did talk about Hong Kong Fui with him recently, and uh, it's now the 50th anniversary in 2024, so hey. Anyway, but we're not talking about any of that. We're actually going to talk about something that uh, this man, Greg Erbar, has done some commentaries on, the Rankin-Bass Christmas specials. So I guess reintroduce yourself, and then how did you get involved doing the commentary on this? (laughs) Well, I'm Greg Erbar. I am a author historian, as so many thousands on YouTube are. (laughs) Um, But I've I've written some books, Mouse Tracks, Story Walt Disney Records. uh, Edited, co-edited the well, co-wrote it with Tim Hollis. Co-edited the uh, Inside the Whimsy Works story of Jimmy Johnson at Disney, one of Mm -hmm. the first memoirs. uh, Co-edited that with Peter Gez. And I've got a book, um, look for it on Amazon or on the University Press of Mississippi website, because it's going to be available for pre-order called Hanna-Barbera, The Recorded History. Cool. And so I'm a busy little bee. And I also have a, a, a podcast called The Fantastic World of Hanna-Barbera that is uh, currently running with uh, cool guests, including Mark, who will be uh, on a future show. Yes. And that's where I mentioned Hong Kong Fui, but you know, that's not. Yes, this. <laughs> yes, number one super guy. Uh oh, I had Uh-oh. I didn't silence my phone. How dare you? It sounds like Jingle Bells. Oh, so no, you know what it is? Jingle. It's the opening to Alice in Wonderland or What's a Nice Kid Like You. Oh, okay, yeah. And, Once you, you know, said if that, you I play got, the yes. beginning of the album, that's my ringtone. <laughs> it sounds like a phone, you know, it's so cool. <laughs> my, my daughter is so over it. Dad, would you please? <laughs> <laughs> well, you said on a different show. I, I want to do a minor diversion, uh, and I, I need to know now. Uh, you said on a different show that you're a huge, huge fan of Alice in Wonderland. How did that come yeah. about? And then we can talk about Rankin Bass. <laughs> it started when I was about five, and they ran the Charlotte Henry Paramount version on local TV. Oh, yeah. And I'd never seen anything. Well, I was five. I'd never seen a lot of things. But it totally captivated me from that moment because the idea of going from one, you know, it was it was it was science fiction fantasy. It was going from mm-hmm. one portal to the next. And in the Charlotte Henry one, they did it so cool because the rabbit hole was like in her backyard. So right away, I'm a kid. <laughs> um, and my son did this, too, when the Tim Burton one came out, hunting for the magic rabbit hole. that's going to take you to <laughs> So then, then the, the, and I had not seen the Disney one because it was out of release. It was on TV, but we missed it, I think, in 64. But in 66, Hanna-Barbera did a wonderful musical version. And everything, I remember Wednesday night, December 30th, no, March 30th, 1966. I was telling the lunchroom ladies, you know, I had to be real good. To, to, I could not wait. Loved it, loved it. Um, the album came out. That introduced me to Hanna-Barbera Records. And then, of course, the Camarada Darlene Gillespie version of the Disney score is probably my favorite record of all time. Hmm. I call it the greatest ever. Some people even agree. Yeah. And then when I saw this in 74, when Disney's version was released to theaters, I sat through it six times. Oh, wow. <laughs> I fell in love. Yeah. Uh, I'm always going to be grateful to Randy Thornton at, at uh, Walt Disney Records for releasing the soundtrack in the 90s. Uh-huh. And so, and it's my favorite theme park ride too. Um, Disneyland, I, I remember dreaming of going on it. You know, <laughs> what's it gonna be like? Mm. And didn't go on it till the 80s. I looked yeah. at it in the remaster, you know. Well, to Just tell you the it. truth, you probably couldn't ride it very well until the 80s. I mean, I remember going to Disneyland throughout the 70s, and invariably the Alice in Wonderland ride was broken down for whatever reason. I think they really? fixed it when they updated Fantasyland in 83 or whatever year that was, you know, and it's like it's never had those problems, but it used to have like tracking problems or something where the thing what would was derail it like, or something. When well, it, it went outside a lot, you know, that was the weird thing about the ride. It was kind of like a half 
you know, it's my show, I can say, half-assed <laughs> ride. In comparison, I mean, granted, the original Fantasyland rides, I don't know how early you went to Disneyland. 87, they were changed oh, Okay, already. so pre-83, before they upgraded it to new Fantasyland, which is now hideously old Fantasyland, but, you know, it's not the original Fantasyland. Um, the original Fantasyland rides were very, it, done very much on the cheap. And lots of I, I'm sure it's plywood, but, you know, it seemed to be cardboard cutouts of things and not much movement. And, uh, you know, like things like and then, and then the Snow White ride was something where Snow White wasn't in it because you or me was it supposed took me to be a while Snow White, but nobody ever got it. So they said <laughs> they just threw up their hands and put Snow White in it. They Nobody ever got the, the what you're supposed to be. Um and the one that remained mostly unchanged from the old version is probably Peter Pan. That's still yeah. the same. The Mr. Toad's very similar, but they upgraded the, the you know, so it wasn't so plywood, you know, on the cheap. Well, Peter Pan you know? has Peter Pan has the um the the uh what is it? Not laser, the uh fiber optic uh style yeah. outer space scene in it. And yeah. And I don't know if it's fiber optic originally, but it always had that effect. You know, if mm -hmm. it was done with light bulbs or however they used to do everything. <laughs> Christmas tree which, lights. <laughs> yeah. But uh, going back to the Alice ride, and then we'll somehow turn this into <laughs> Rankin Bass. Well, we'll, yeah, but, we'll, we'll but, uh, back, go, the original Alice in Wonderland ride, I know it didn't open with the park. It opened like in 58 or something like that. Yeah, and open around, yeah. It, it was just like, oh, let's just slap this on the side of the, uh, the castle and uh, we don't have that much money to do this because Disney really didn't make a profit much until Mary Poppins. So, you know, anything he did went back into the park as much as he could. And he had sponsors mm -hmm. and everything. You know all this. So, but, uh, you know, and uh, but the ride originally would go out in the open, which is kind of weird because it's a dark ride. And then you're suddenly out in bright sunlight and like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and then mm -hmm. you zip around and then you go back in. And, you know, it did that a couple times from my memory. And then later they changed it where you, I don't think you go outside. Maybe you go outside once, but you I go I, outside I, now a little bit. Yeah, but it, end, it was yeah. a lot then. <laughs> You know? no and like I said, it always seemed to be broken. I don't know if it was really broken or if it was like the ice cream machine at McDonald's where eh, we just don't want to deal with it today. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the other, you know, obvious uh, Alice ride was the the tea, the teacups, which have been there mm -hmm. since the day it opened. So, you know, it's like and so I guess they figured, well, we already got an Alice ride. This is good. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> oh. and the Mad Hatter hat shop, you know, and things like that. So, you know, what's funny about though, that you mentioned that you are Snow White and no one really got it, including myself. Mm -hmm. You don't have that effect with Alice because I have this theory that we all identify with Alice. Yeah. Because she's navigating, and I, I call Alice a documentary sometimes rather than a, because as I get older, it just reflects the world. She's yeah. wandering through this complete topsy-turvy nonsense thing and trying to make sense of it and having these these heated discussions with the characters and everything is this illogic is logical to her and i don't think we think twice when we go through wonderland that we're doing it too you know yeah yeah and that might be the reason why you know it's like i want to go through wonderland i don't really want to go on a scary adventure with a huntsman chasing after me and going into this house with yeah. little dwarves and you know, i don't know i really don't want to go there you know but peter pan hey yeah let's fly in a boat your ship or you whatever know, they can you know? they can build billion dollar attractions now and they're all quite lovely and shiny but you know the line of peter pan and the magic of peter pan it's so simple yeah. It's just, it, I don't know. Ray Bradbury loved it. Well, there's always Walt's favorite dark ride, too, you know. <laughs> and I don't think that would have changed with Space Mountain or anything that came out after his death, you know. I think he probably would was. Was it his say, favorite as well? Oh, it I was. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I don't know how to switch it back. So Rankin Bass is what we're really supposed to be talking about. Rankin Bass. <laughs> well, you know, it does. Did they do an Alice in Wonderland over at Rankin Bass? Oh, they were like very, some... they were very attached to Pinocchio. Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz. Okay. You saw that going on constantly in their work from okay. almost the beginning. So how how would uh, to tie it in? How does Alice in Wonderland kind of figure into it? Not directly, it's kind of indirectly, well, correct? 
They, they they did do that girl in Wonderland. That's true. I forgot about that. Yeah, you know, okay. I was, trying, I was going through my classes. head, like mentally <laughs> thinking, okay, this, that, that, no, no, and, you know, Brady kids, no, no, Osmonds, no. Well, maybe an Osmonds episode. I don't know. But, but they <laughs> they did the, the the idea of a journey through a magic land happened. It was mostly Wizard of Oz and Pinocchio, but they did do a version of Alice in Wonderland for that syndicated. Festival of Family Classics series and seven, and I figured they probably did something there too. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, but it was it was those two because uh, from the very beginning, the, when it was videocraft, there were the two syndicated five minute cartoons, The New Adventures mm-hmm. of Pinocchio and the uh, what, is it, what is it, The New Adventures of the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, uh, and that was a sell-in. Everybody who watched them knows the songs. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so so that was and each of those used the two techniques that we got to know because just ultimately it would be either cell animation or stop motion mm-hmm. so that's kind of where it all well actually i mean if we want to tell the beautiful story of uh of rankin bass sure go ahead do that. and then how tie uh, it into rank- how you first heard about them too so well it, it many of us it was rudolph the red nosed reindeer okay because I didn't know that if that was, was your first ex- exposure was, or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know what? I remember watching Return to Oz. Um, I'm, I'm not old, that old and creepy, but I was a little kid. But I remember watching it mm-hmm. because when about two years later, my aunt bought me the Happy Time with the Oz album, mm-hmm. and I thought it was similar to that. It had no connection at all. But mm-hmm. I, I said, "Oh, that Oz thing we saw on TV—that's like this." You know, I was a kid. But yeah. I did, we, we watched it. And yeah. so that was the first thing. And that was really, that was when it was video craft as well. As a matter of fact, I think the name Rankin Bass was added to Rudolph later. Because yeah. I don't think it said that. They weren't called that. No. So I think that came later. Well, also, they revised the ending in the second year, which, yeah. which it's kind of funny. You know, the revised ending is what I saw for a number of years. And then the original one got slapped on. And I think now with home video, I think on these uh, DVDs and Blu-rays, uh, the original ending is uh, more prominent now, I think. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, I guess Rudolph was the first uh, exposure you had to Rankin Bass, to your knowledge? Uh, actually, I saw the Return to Oz special. That was their very first special. And it was also GE Fantasy Hour in 1963. and so I remember getting the Happy Time, one uh, Wizard of Oz album, thinking it was r- related to that, and it wasn't. But I was a kid, so I thought it was because it had a similar kind of uh, so- sound. But uh, so that was the first, and then Rudolph was was kind of over- overshadowed all of that because yeah. that immediately caught on, and as many have said, it changed over the years because it had bits and pieces changed the the song one of the songs changed out because i didn't have the record album until the late 70s mm-hmm. i didn't know there was one because you know back in the day you didn't have your fancy amazons and if you yeah. special ordered at a store it took weeks or months and if you got a defective one it was weeks or months to get another one and the Rudolph album didn't have the song Fame and Fortune on it, yeah. but it had an extended version. It still has an extended version of We're a Couple of Misfits, which mm-hmm. is the way the show was when it premiered. But then it was a, what they call a television spectacular. And in those days, they used to, in the early days of radio and TV, they used to do the specials over and over again live. So mm-hmm. the idea must have been with the sponsor, let's keep it fresh and keep changing it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so when I watched it in the 70s, which is when I got the album, I got used to fame and fortune. Right. And kind of forgotten that it wasn't in the original. Special. Right. <laughs> and that's the way I saw it, because uh, I'm trying to think what my first exposure to Rankin Bass, possibly, probably Rudolph, but... It may have been something as inane as the Jackson 5 show, you know, on Saturday mornings. Well, that was a huge hit. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I don't know, would they have the season before? You know, I have to think about each. It's like they had the tomfoolery show. I think I saw that. I love that. Yeah. So it was some Saturday morning thing I think I saw first because 
uh, Rudolph would have been in December, uh, but I, it's quite possible I could have seen it the year before, but I don't know. You know, it's like, I'm thinking I saw some Saturday morning thing first and then I saw Rudolph and then I saw the other ones. I know for a fact, and we'll get into this later, but the one you did the commentary on Santa Claus is coming to town. I saw first run. I know I, I know I did on that one, but and remember anyway. the cat the you probably remember the ad in TV guy that said Santa Claus is coming to town with the date. Yes. And yeah. I think it was Parker Brothers. I remember those ads because you'd get the TV guide mm-hmm. and two things about TV guide. It had the teletypes and the yellow page in the front and in the back. And it would announce what was in production. So you, mm-hmm. and you knew it was going to be rank and bass, even if they didn't say because it had stars in it, what yeah. they were working on. And then when the specials were on, you would go through and plan your whole life around them. <laughs> I remember <laughs> when I started working in my uh, in my teen and college years, I was hoping I wouldn't have the day off. But when I was working at uh, at one store, I would go over to the Wolco to the TV department to watch the specials because I was working those evenings on my break. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of kind of bittersweet because it wasn't quite the same. But Right. You mentioned the celebrity hosts. Um, I'm thinking, and especially now, since they've been on for 60 years, a lot of them, um, I think most people's first exposure to Burl Ives, Jimmy Durante, right. Fred Astaire, you name it, is probably from these specials and they probably find out later oh my god he was a dancer in the 30s oh my god he was a comedian with a big nose oh my god he was <laughs> yeah yeah he he was a folk singer you know it's like you know. now burl eyes was quite active still in the early yes. 70s so i mean and you know i saw america sings and i was like uh happy over at disneyland so i was happy that uh oh wow you know got burl eyes for that and i think he he did TV specials and stuff, so he's around. Yeah, of course, you know you find out later that he was a proper actor. He did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and things like that. So you know, but it's like for someone just discovering Rudolph now, it's kind of odd. You know, it's who's this kind of plump snowman guy with a little goatee? Who is that? You know, if you're yeah. just discovering it as a little child, you know. <laughs> but hopefully, they will uh, use it to research and find out. Oh, he had an extensive and varied career. <laughs> So. I think a lot of young people are uh, perhaps more more in- interested in finding out more than maybe they're given credit for, because yeah. it is easy to access this information. And you can find out that Burl Ives won, I think it was two Oscars or two, you know, for the other was the the big country. He, oh, was, yeah. he was incredible in that. And he did a ton of Disney movies and including so dear my heart which introduced the lavender blue dilly dilly song and uh summer magic so he's the rankin bass was able to get big names uh of legendary status so they those names still endure because they were involved in things they they were famous for such a long time and so many things Right. That even though the names may not be familiar because they don't make anything now because they're no longer with us, they left such a backlog of right. major entertainment that it it doesn't it doesn't hurt at all. Now you know it, it doesn't hurt at all that you've got Jimmy Durante, Fred Astaire, um, oh, and then in their features they had big names. You know Haley Mills was was in the Daydreamer and. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sesu Hayakawa and uh, <laughs> Boris Karloff and Mad Monster Party. So right. they, they from what Maury Laws told me, these big stars trusted Rankin Bass. They did their homework. They knew what they were doing. These people were not always used to doing animation voices, but they were, they were so professional. They had such a great reputation because it was unusual for stars to do cartoons it was fairly rare it wasn't it wasn't a requirement for feature for features and specials now um as it is now do you know i mean later on i'm sure it was easy you call a buddy hack hey you want to do one okay you know uh but early on uh do you know if it was difficult getting say burl lives or any of these early on these earlier say J- jimmy cagney for the story of smoking yes. the bear you know he was retired you know <laughs> so um 
it took the president to do that. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, we can go off onto that tangent. What what happened there? <laughs> well, he did the special, um, the Ballad of Smokey Ballad the Bear Smokey. in 1966, I believe. Yeah. And he did not want to come out of retirement. You know, Shirley Booth also had pretty much retired in 74 when she did sure. The Year Without a Santa Claus. But, mm -hmm. You know, what a great voice. Yes. For, for stuff they, they knew they, they were not only famous but they had great voices that's true yeah. and a lot of them had worked in radio mm -hmm. so uh, jimmy cagney's situation was that he said no and then and then he he said well i'll do it if um i think i think well rankin had connections because he worked oh, for okay. abc he was very much um he was very much a raconteur and he managed to get Lyndon Johnson to send him a letter, you know, because this was for the forestry service. This was a Smokey the Bear still is iconic when it comes to fire prevention. You know, we check our Smokey Bear sign up the street. You know, we've had wildfires that almost we almost lost our house. So we depend on Smokey the Bear. Yeah. So it was an important thing to do. It was right. a pretty serious special. It wasn't as comical as some. Mm -hmm. And it's too bad it isn't shown more. I think you can find it on YouTube, yeah. but it is shown a lot, perhaps because of contractual things. And it's I not. Thinking, I always think it's because it doesn't have real holiday holiday theming. Yeah, you know, like the, the non-holiday stuff isn't as well known because they're they're real. And Rankin Bass really became and i remember tv guide saying calling them the leading producer of holiday specials because that's kind of what they became but mm -hmm. they weren't that in the 60s and 70s they right. were a small and they stayed a small company uh in downtown uh, new york mm -hmm. with a suite of offices production coordinators and almost all the creative work was uh freelance so they mm -hmm. may have used people a lot but they were not on necessarily on staff there. They didn't have an animation studio per se, but because of Rankin Bass, the rise of the the great studios in Japan, particularly Studio Ghibli, mm -hmm. uh, which in essence came out of the Topcraft studio and, right. and had an involved, uh, Hayao Miyazaki was a young animator on a lot of these things. They had a lot to do with what anime became because there wasn't that that kind of animation much on television mm -hmm. except for Astro Boy and Kimba the White Lion and my favorite Prince Planet that American International made. Right. <laughs> so you know what else we I knew Rankin Bass from was from Saturday morning was the King Kong show. Oh yeah, that's right. No, that I didn't see first run, but I did see it uh, like they'd sell they resold it in weekday strips you know and oh. you know so it was just it was very, syndicated very in the popular. afternoon so yeah mm -hmm. and uh, tom and that was that was really saturday morning mb yeah yeah ten times as big as all you know maury laws loved using the french horns you know for exciting moments and stuff it was so you knew that yeah. they made it because of the sound as well as because of the picture it was an unusual yeah. look for and network tv had never had a a japanese animated uh series made for american television because mm -hmm. astro boy was dubbed um right. and as with i think with the intent of marketing it here so the way speed racer was speed racer mm -hmm. was intended to be so but it was it was a dubbed cartoon, whereas Rankin Bass did all of the preliminary work here with people like Don Duga, who did the boards and then the keyframes and the people like Jack Davis and Paul Coker doing the designs. And so what they would do was they would have the art ready to go and the sound completely ready, or almost maybe they would have some some roughs, but it was all worked out far in advance. A lot of that was Jules Bass too, because Jules Bass timed the timed it to the second. Had every that's one of the reasons those specials never seem to have much um, fat to trim. They always seem to have everything running, you know, the motor running all the way through. They didn't lag very much or feel padded. That was according to Maury. That was Jules Bass, and so the boards, the script, the recording, the music. 
Um, perhaps the post scoring was done later. I doubt it. I th because their their productions audio wise were so tight that you could listen to them as records because there was a narrator and many of them were made into records. So I yeah. think all that got shipped. The keyframes, the maybe some preliminary animation, and Don Duga, who was the uh, one of the continuity people, uh, would do some of the would do the boards, the sketches. Paul Coker Jr. Jack Davis, people like that would that would all get sent and excuse me, and that was the way they did it from I think they started in the late fifties around the same time as Hanna Barbera with commercials, but what they were doing and Arthur Rankin did it because he was an art director at ABC, Jules mm -hmm. Bass was an agency copywriter, and so they knew a lot of influential people in New York already. Rankin was part of a program to look into ABC doing, or or just the media doing, uh, doing materials in the uh, in Asia. So mm -hmm. he got that's where he located these studios, and then he would supervise it in the Danny K book. Um, oh, it's I don't know, it's Prince of Fools or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. He and Danny K went to Japan to supervise and approve the the figure that was made of him uh, oh, yeah. the way the animation was being done they did do research to try to make them move the, the best they could but rankin bass stop motion is done on twos and threes it has a certain sort of wonderful herky-jerky style to it and that's the style that was done in elf there it was deliberately done to be oh, yeah. Because there apparently there was discussion of well, well this isn't as fluid this is we can do this on ones and we can have it look like Nightmare Before Christmas or something he says no I want the Rankin Bass style yeah, the herky jerky is crazy. yeah yeah it was very yeah. distinctive it almost felt like elaborate uh, Macy's windows you know yeah with things moving in them so that or or at Disneyland you know you had some of those windows you everybody loves the windows oh yeah. So, that was kind of the feel of them and maybe that's what's why they've endured too because technically it doesn't matter mm -hmm. how, what the limits are the charm and the the handcrafted feel of them are so completely wonderful so by by the 80s when outsourcing became a necessity for the companies you know Hanna Barbera had uh, taken over API studios in Australia mm -hmm. and started also doing some animation overseas and Hannah would go there and they need a point of a person to run it. Well, Disney did the same thing. They did, they did the same thing that Arthur Rankin did in 1984. They, uh, they located uh, TMS, which really did mm -hmm. superb work. They, I am convinced, convinced the networks, it was worth the, the extra money to get really, that's one of the reasons their cartoons looked so incredibly good for television because the name disney had to mean that kind of animation so they could get results partially because the name disney probably got them more budget but also because they found these really great studios soon everyone was using them right and there were other ones the phil cartoons and places like that that were being uh utilized but the this it was the same thing it was what rankin bass had done already they they were innovative now, did they go to Asia all the way back uh, on the Pinocchio show and everything, yeah. or was that? Oh, okay. So they went. Yeah, that was from the I beginning. Think, okay, I think it was Mushi or Toei, um, one of those okay. companies. It says so at the end. Um, it yeah. has usually one or two uh, Asian names in there, and some of those are highly renowned artists hmm. that worked on them okay. and are getting more. If you go online, getting much more recognition than they ever did because people didn't understand. I you know where things were done or how they were done and yeah so there is yeah and and again like i said king kong was sort of introduced it to saturday morning tv and it it gave rankin bass this this small company in new york the ability to be prolific and a strong competitor with filmation and hanna barbera and the patty freeling on saturday morning because if you look at the late 60s lineups of shows and you can look at the lineups on Wikipedia of what was on. Right. They were contenders with these powerhouse yeah. companies on the yeah. West Coast. Yeah, well, I always say during the early 70s, especially, there was four big companies. And, you know, you mentioned three of them is, uh, you know, is uh, 
Santa Barbara Filmation to Patty Freeling, Rankin Pass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got a few others in there. The the company, I always forget the name of it, uh, that did Emergency Plus Four. And yeah, yeah. Muhammad the, Ali. Like, and all the, and uh, the, um, f- yeah. uh, let's see, uh, the company that made... Uh, that made Roger Ramjet, uh, Ken yeah. Snyder Productions did Hot Wheels. Yeah. You know, and then of course, Total Television did a few things, but they were done by the 70s. But they kept re airing Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo ad infinitum. So it's like it seemed like they were current, you know. And, and we should, yeah, we and should of course, Jay Ward. You know, well, I learned a lot from your books about TTV. Well, and yeah, those, those, they really had stopped after the Beagles. But yeah, yeah they were on all the time. Yeah. And, Again, no matter what what uh, quote research says, kids don't care when anything was made. They no, just look no. at it if it's fun. Yeah, and you know the way they kind of haphazardly uh, aired things on network and syndication. They may not air a certain episode for years, and so when you'd see it, you go, "Oh, a new one," you know, and you would right. know. <laughs> the only thing that kind of clued me in that the oh these underdogs are all repeats is Wally Cox's death in 1973, and I go oh okay I guess he's not going to do any more underdogs, not knowing he stopped doing them a decade before almost yeah you know so you know. we had nowhere to look up when they were made how many episodes were made so when one repeated we had no idea you know were there 17 of them. You yeah, know, you know, thirty nine. We didn't know any of that, so yeah, I didn't know I, anything until I did that book. Is how many there were, and there's not like a set number. Like you know, it would be nice if they were all thirteen or seventeen or whatever. You know, like uh, Hanna Barbera typically was at the time. You know, but uh, the way it was told to me, and uh, it was when General Mills thought that they had enough episodes, they said, "All right, that's enough." And yeah. it could be 70 episodes, it could be 140 episodes, whatever. They just said, nope, oh, that's enough of that one. Do a new show. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which isn't too different from how uh, it evolved with cable TV. Uh, yeah. If they, if you know, one of those teen sitcoms had enough episodes, they'd stop making it because they could just rerun them and rerun them. And now uh, that's what the streaming services do, too. They'll go some, if the show's a huge hit, just like network TV, they'll keep it going. But mm-hmm. a lot of times they'll just let it go with a few episodes. So, uh, except that you can pick the ones you like. We would get all excited if, like, oh, it's the Tennessee Tuxedo where he made a record. You know, Abracadabra, Change Over Angel Re. You know, right. we didn't have the control of what they were showing us. The other thing that was weird is because General Mills owned the both the Rocky and the, uh, you know, the, the Ward and the TTV stuff, and also tied in with uh, Hanna-Barbera Space Cadets and Young right. Samson, they would mix those cartoons even on network TV. So right. the, the and the styles were, even though the, the animation might be the same, the styles of them are vastly different. Right. And to this day, I don't even know the story completely because it was kind of a very, you know, convoluted way of doing TV. I just know that uh, it eventually became the program exchange, which was in mm-hmm. syndication for a long, long time. And uh, that's how you saw those shows for a number of years. So. I think they did it on, I think they called it a barter system that yeah, they did with syndicated totally shows where the sponsor would guarantee so many uh, and payment for so many commercials. And that's why General Mills being so, so big they were able to make it very comfortable for a station to run the cartoons because they would support so much of the advertising revenue. And that's one of the reasons that uh, that Rocky and Bullwink and all those endured for such a long time and played for so long and other mm-hmm. cartoons didn't. And conversely, according to your book, the Beagles didn't have a deal like that. Yeah. That alone. So it kind of mm-hmm. faded away. Now, did Rankin Bass have any sort of deals like that, to your knowledge? I um, doubt it. Um, they okay. they pretty much went wherever this a network, a sponsor, or a production company would take them. That's yeah. why it's hard to to do a complete anything. That's why that collection is pretty significant because the with the blue cover and which i think it's blu-ray now and it's blu-ray yeah. as well as DVD. yeah i got it on dvd and they didn't put it out on blu-ray initially now it's on blu-ray but i don't know if i'm gonna rebuy it because i do have 
uh, the set that came out the year before that has like six of these on Blu-ray. Yes. And I go, that's a, that's enough Blu-ray for me. <laughs> well, you know, five or Jerry six. Beck you know, was very thrilled when that set yeah. came out because what it meant was that biz for business reasons, it meant that studios could play nice because yeah. that took Warner and Universal to combine their library to get all of the major specials on there. Because before you had to buy several sets and sets within sets and they yeah. had... They all had the title classic Christmas special, so it was hard to find. <laughs> and they would duplicate things sometimes. Like, you I know. think I had, I don't know which one I'm looking on here. I probably had the Year Without a Santa Claus, like, on three different sets, just so I could get, oh, this set has the Pinocchio one. Right. Oh, this has the Leprechauns. Okay. This one has, you know, the, you know, yeah. the, the, the uh, life and story of Santa Claus or whatever that one was called later on in the 80s, you know, <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of them were through Warner Archives and, you know, you had to go through. It's true. Really roundabout way and so i had like a dvd shelf like this thick and now it's all this you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah me too but that's uh, the same thing with their series um yeah. what series they did do uh, some of king kong was released and some of well tom foolery wasn't because i mean i'm surprised you brought it up it was my brother my older brother and his and his friends who are older than me that show would have nbc didn't know what they had that show was yeah. nuts and yeah. all the older kids loved that and because yeah. it was nuts and i don't know if i loved it but i just remember like somebody with an umbrella head and just weird yeah. imagery like that and so you know i'd watch it i watched everything of course but <laughs> you know it's like it just stuck out i didn't know it was called tomfoolery until years later uh when i was researching for rank and best just to see what shows they did but you know it's like uh you know, once I saw that, I go, oh, my God, that's that show that has a fish in a fishbowl and all this weird stuff going on. Yeah, and, they, and the then, characters had weird names. Yangi Bangi Bo is the one I can remember best. But I think the elephant was the umbrugulous. I don't know. Yeah. They had It was based on Lewis Carroll and, and Norm, um, not Norman Lear, Edward Lear Edward lines. Lear, yeah. And it had a yeah. lot of songs. And the wonderful Mike Sam singers for the yeah. late in the late sixties, uh, early seventies, the Mike Sam singers at Abbey Road recorded a lot of the singing in in um, in uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Uh, Though the ones a lot of the prime seventies, early seventies specials, they they sang with the Beatles, they sang with Barbara, and was like Butta. So they were like the best in Europe. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, it seems like uh, everybody was on the bandwagon doing, like, really crazy cockeyed shows. Patty Freeling had Here Comes the Grump, which is kind of grump. a loose Oz-type ripoff. And then uh, <laughs> um, even Hanna-Barbera kind of dabbled in some strange concepts, you know, uh, around that time. I, I don't know if it was just the late 60s. And, of course, Sid and Marty Croft, you know, they, they yeah. were just nuts. So, <laughs> you know. It was getting increasingly um, nuts in the 70s. It, yeah, the wilder, yeah. the better, the premises. Yeah. So, I don't know if that's what they liked or not. I mean. Um, Some of it was just throwing. Rankin Ben. Some of it was just throwing stuff at the wall. You know, the best the best example was Saturday Superstar movie, because right. all the animation companies, including Hal Seeger, were doing these basically yeah. pro, uh, basically pilots. Uh, it's where Yogi's Gang came right. from. These hour thing that that was very Michael Eisner because it was like the ABC movie yeah. of the week, which also was kind of and and Love American style, which was a way of getting yeah. shows that like Happy Days on. It yeah. it was eclectic beyond belief yeah i have to say that's probably even though it's kind of piecemeal how they got together you know but it was probably my favorite show hands down in the early 70s you know on saturday morning you know because you didn't know who was going to turn up you know mm -hmm. it's like one week would be lost in space next week that girl next week gidget next week banana splits you didn't know yeah you know? and then talk about crazy concepts you got your uh Daffy and oh, Porky the infamous the, gro the groovy ghoulies. You know how did that happen? You know? that, yeah, <laughs> that one is legendary. That's that goes up there with the Star Wars holiday special. The uh, Daffy and uh, was it Porky and Daffy? Um, yeah, uh, wasn't no. Bugs? Bugs couldn't be be no. involved in that. But um, I mean, I think there was licensing reasons why they couldn't have Bugs. But probably if Bugs was a real living, breathing soul, he would be 
I'm glad I dodged that bullet. <laughs> <laughs> what was cool about the and we're 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 getting in the weeds, but I we do that a lot on on mine too, is because yeah, it all yes. kind of relates. Yes, was the was the live action moment in that hour, and which apparently was a a film that that Lou Scheimer produced. Then those were the guys from the 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 rock band who also did a tiny bit of touring, and they made this film like out at some dusty old set. And just threw it together and it's it that and they used it in the special you know saturday morning tv they never wasted anything <laughs> that was one example of that now, totally right? totally shifting gears because you'd mentioned it once or twice and it's a question i had for a bit and um you are huge 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 on music mm -hmm. uh from these shows and not just these shows disney and everybody else and of course your book and you mentioned that you mentioned earlier but um how did you approach all these shows when you were growing up? Were you listening for the music or are you more interested in the animation? What what attracted you to these Rankin Bass shows? As I got to know the way they were produced and there was a, a, a solid musical comedy drama format to them, I would approach each one just like when there were at the time original Sherman Brothers film musicals coming out mm -hmm. there was the ballad there was the you know the i want song there was the song that that was sung twice by different groups of people you know there was the the catchy tune there was the novelty number and what i didn't know at the time was what they were using was the classic broadway format that went back to oklahoma and to a degree and you could also say snow white and it started with things like Showboat and stuff, but that was it was classic musical comedy, you know, the Lehman Ingalls school of how to put them together, the sort of thing that came back to Disney with Little Mermaid and Howard Ashman. And there's famously a lecture that he gave to animation about how to bring a contemporary flair to uh, the classic Disney using Broadway, both traditionally and contemporary. And what he was doing and what Pixar was doing when they began was going back to what worked, but freshening it. And that's what yeah. Rackin' Bass did. They did that when Disney wasn't doing it. I mean, there were some terrific Disney films in the 60s and 70s. Um, sorry. Um, but they were they were largely not they had songs in them and set pieces but they weren't musicals so much as song after song with a with a specific thing jungle book is highly musical but those are musical set pieces in fact when you when we got the albums those songs were long because a lot was going on during them but there wasn't the the classic structure um starting with 101 dalmatians probably because sleeping beauty underperformed as they say <laughs> or disappointed yes. but but you know picked up momentum years later as many disney classics that are returned to and not discarded um you know because they originally weren't successful you know we find that a lot too there's an audience for these things and if you bring them back you're it's a big surprise wow well mm -hmm. but at the time they were looking at new techniques they were they were having to cut budgets and 101 dalmatians used the xerox process but also stepped away really from being a musical it had right. four four like, songs but they were real quick canine crunchies and then like, i love the that Cruella de Vil is the yeah. two I can think of, you know. But, I don't the, know but Cruella are. de Vil is, <laughs> is made incidental to the plot rather right. than everybody stops and sings Cruella de Vil. You know, that's not right. the way it was done. Uh, so, but Rankin Bass from the start, from yeah. Return to Oz, was doing that structure. And really, nobody in animation was really doing it. And if they did, it was very rare. But Rankin Bass was was just giving us these new individual musicals with except for the familiar song which they always very wisely and this was probably romeo muller and jules bass they mm -hmm. they very cleverly you know wove the lyrics of you know rudolph with your nose you know stop <laughs> calling me names you yeah. know, they were walking <laughs> you won't be in reindeer games they were working the lyrics and bits of the song you know, right. Frosty the Snowman, it takes them 25 minutes to sing it, <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> you know, so they yeah. were doing that, 
But then they were also throwing either original songs like Johnny Marx's or the great Laws and Bass combination, yeah. original scores. Who was doing that? Very yeah. little. The Shermans were doing it. And yeah. Uh, but it wasn't very, very, it wasn't being done on animation hardly at all. And sometimes they would even take a half hour and put an original score in it. The best example is, um, well, there's be several. The Little Drummer Boy had one star in the night and it had mm -hmm. Why Can't the Animal Smile. I mean, in a half hour, you have these memorable songs in addition mm -hmm. to Little Drummer Boy. And then Twas the Night Before Christmas, you've got the great Even a Miracle Needs a Hand and Give Your Heart a Try. And, you know, Christmas bells are ringing, Santa. You know, and then a musicalized version of the entire poem that starts yeah. at the beginning and then finishes at the end. So musical form, musical uh, theater form, and musical film form was very much in their things. We right. didn't know why we liked that, but we sure did. And you're without mm -hmm. Santa Claus, you know, who doesn't know the Heat Miser and the Snow Miser song, right. even from Batman, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so no. and not only that, but what Maury Laws would do also is create background themes. So even Rossi the Snowman, there may be one song but there's also so you're getting a, a wonderfully rich piece of music in addition mm -hmm. now how much of an influence do you think uh mr magoo's christmas carol had on all these specials i think that it may have had quite a bit because that okay. that was the first right uh, now we have to even go back. Mr. Magoo was the first animated musical special for TV. But if you go back to the 50s, they were they were doing not only Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella, which was a mammoth, mammoth hit, and so was Mary Martin and Peter Pan. Incidentally, done, you know, year after year, like for two, three years, they would do it again. Mm. Um, and you can get those now on DVD. Um, and you can also get Babes in Toyland on DVD that NBC did year after year with Wally Cox and um, I think Barbara Cook. But they would mm -hmm. change out songs or change out, you know, mm -hmm. routines and stuff. So there are loads of fun to, to watch. And then there was a special, one of the ones Rankin Bass remade in the late mm -hmm. 70s called The Stingiest Man in Town. Right. which was originally an Alcoa hour. I think you can find this online with Basil Rathbone and Vic Damone. And the score from that is so great. Mm -hmm. But it was done live. There's no video to speak of of it. It's black and white. Rankin Bass remade it with Tom Bosley and mm -hmm. uh, Walter Matthau. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that for a long time. Mm -hmm. But it's and it's a terrific album. The album's also on uh, CD. It's a terrific mm -hmm. album. So the form of television musical was already there. And Max mm -hmm. Liebman, who made your show of shows, did a lot of those. He did Heidi, a musical version of that. And there was a lot of the Our Town was a television mm -hmm. musical. And that's where Love and Marriage came from. Not from Married with Children. <laughs> no. <laughs> so So television was used to that was yeah. used to, to, to the musical form. Mr. Magoo did it first in 62. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I think Timex was the sponsor. I think probably if not to, I mean, the ratings must have been huge because nothing else was like it. I mean, that's a Daryl, um, a Daryl Van Sitter's question. How were the right. ratings? But I can't imagine they weren't astronomical because nothing right. else was like it. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, we know, you know, Rudolph was a huge success. Return to Oz, maybe not so much because they didn't know where to put these specials to. I remember Rudolph being on at like 530 or, you know, Sunday or 630. It, the times were weird. <laughs> well, but, was Return to Oz kind of like a test run just to see if it would work so. for them? Yeah. And that and that was um, they didn't always outsource to to Japan because they also uh, did stuff in Canada and Return to Oz, as well as Tales, it was Tales of the Wizard of Oz, were done by a company called Crawley Films. Mm -hmm. And even if they didn't do the animation in Canada, often they would use Canadian voice actors. And the voices in Rudolph are all Canadian, uh, largely due to someone named uh, Bernard or Bunny Cowan. 
who also did did voices and announcing. So when you and King Kong was also so when you hear Billy Richards, who's the voice of Rudolph, also playing Bobby Bond in King Kong, you know, oh, it's a Canadian cast and Paul Souls, uh, who was the voice of Spider Man, right? For the uh, the sixty seven version, he was Hermie the Elf, and so he was also a Canadian actor. Uh, mm-hmm. that they use quite often um you can hear them all constantly through festival of family classics because there's right. a few episodes of that yeah and then of course they have paul freeze who's just like their every yeah. man that they had to put in every sh- show <laughs> Paul Freeze could have done you know i love the scene in santa claus is coming to town where the burgermeister is is uh, presented with the baby by grinsley and paul freeze is all three voices <laughs> he could have done them all he would have done them all (laughs) you know but and that's that's so often the case yeah and june foray did so many and uh oh yeah there were but yeah paul freeze was a staple of the of the late 60s early 70s ranking Mm -hmm. bass sound how did paul freeze manage to do that if you don't mind diverting on to him for a second uh like mel blanks for the most part at least for the majority of his career was Warner Brothers. I mean, later he did a lot of Hanna-Barbera voices, but, uh, you know, it seemed like Paul Freese transcended any one studio. He worked for Disney, he worked for Rankin-Bass, he worked for Walter Lance, he worked for uh, you name it, you know. <laughs> uh, how did he transcend that? And he wasn't so contractually obligated to one single studio. I think that Mel Blanc's career was not parallel in the 50s when he was still contracted to warner brothers while paul freeze was gaining a lot of momentum he was on screen a few times too but he was gaining a lot of momentum as a hollywood um uh adr you know dialogue replacement looping actor as well as a a very ubiquitous narrator of things so he wasn't doing he was doing stuff beyond cartoon voices so he was yeah. he did a lot of trailers um disney used him a lot in the late 50s and early 60s uh, mm-hmm. all the way up through you know the haunted mansion and things like that so mm-hmm. his career the assignments he got were different the kind of things that were expected of him were different you can hear mel blank doing some looping in in movies yeah. and tv shows sometimes and june right. Furry. but mm-hmm. paul freeze forgot you know he was in uh, list of adrian messenger which was yeah. a which was a highly prestigious thing he was doing a lot of kirk douglas's voiceovers <laughs> uh, it wasn't it wasn't kirk douglas people are going "Ooh, he's so versatile yeah with the help of paul freeze you know <laughs> no, no, nothing against kirk douglas but yeah. you know we all know when we hear the voice who it is yeah. um so overdu- overdubbing was being done for dialogue a lot and there were certain actors that that and he just he just kept getting work because he could do great impressions. And he was also on the, um, on the Spike Jones show famous mm-hmm. with, uh, with Peter Lorre mm-hmm. talking to him, you know, and sounding, ex- it sounding exactly like right. him. So his idea, his ability to mimic and that just put him in that position in this early sixties, Oh, we're going to run out of time soon. Yeah. Early sixties um, as being, um, you know, they, they, he called himself, I think on the back, of one uh, maybe it was the gay Paris album the most heard actor in in the world you know it's very mickey rooney one, something like that he i think he was pretty good at promoting that side and his agent i think he was with charles stern mm-hmm. uh, i do know that i do know from reading one of the books about mel blank by his sound editor at his studio Mm-hmm. Um, Mel <coughs> constantly me. felt like he wasn't being compensated properly, you know, because Warner Brothers wasn't paying him a ton. Uh, Alan right. Reed made more than he did on the Flintstones, and <laughs> and and doing cartoon voices didn't pay the way commercials did in yeah. feature trailers. So Paul Freeze was also doing very very well. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, I guess yeah, you know, Paul Freeze really didn't do cartoon characters until uh rocky and bullwinkle or maybe he did some walter lance prior to that yeah he did walter lance he did he did disney okay. uh he he did he did them here and there but but he, i mean he, he majority so of them are after 
you know, Boris Badenov, you know, it seems like, yeah. you know, like Ludwig von Drake started afterwards. I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of different ones he's known for. Uh, <laughs> Pillsbury really Doughboy, nice commercial, Fruit Loops and all that stuff. So it's like uh, Toucan Sam, you know, you know, it's all later. So, okay. Well, you yeah, know, I didn't, uh, Mark, I didn't really Mark think Andrew. about it because when I was a kid, he's like, it seemed like he voiced it. If it was, if it wasn't Paul Fries, it was Mel Blanc or it was Dawes Butler or June Frey. You know, yeah, those were yeah. the the ones that seemed to voice everything. <laughs> you know, uh, Mark Evernier also uh, points out that Alan Melvin doesn't often get put in the same category because he's mostly known for his visual work. Right. But if you think about it, he also worked for pretty much every studio, including Rankin Bass. Yeah. Um, he was on Kid Power and a couple of other things. Yeah. And he he worked for everyone. He did voices in almost everything. And he was also on some of the greatest TV shows in history, <laughs> and yeah. no, people don't extol the, the the talents of Alan Alan Melvin is not enough. He was versatile. I, I, I think it's because you know it's just like Howard Morris. You know, it's yeah. like they were mainly screen actors on TV or whatever in movies and stuff. But I mean, you saw them more often. It's like uh, there's this interview I have with June Foray from decades ago, but she said her last on screen appearance where she wasn't playing herself. Uh, was a Mexican telephone operator on Green, Green Acres. Acres. Yeah, and after that, she said, you know, I'd rather just do the voices. And, you know, she occasionally would appear as herself in a movie or something, but it would be as herself, not some other character. So, you know. Yeah, she was yeah. on, uh, did sketches with Johnny Carson. When yeah, I saw some, some of, of those recently, show. actually. I got that little DVD set that has some of his old shows. And I go, ah, June Frey's on here. John Stevenson was on there too. And yeah. it's like, well, oh, you know, so okay. You know, I guess they all did kind of more acting back in the day. Same with Paul Freeze, you know. And then as they got older, it's like, hey, this this uh <laughs> voice <laughs> acting work is a lot easier. I don't have yeah. to dress up. I, uh, I, you know, I could do it from my house. I think that's how Paul Freeze did a lot of stuff in his later he, years. He he was one of the first because yeah. he was so prestigious and he lived far from Hollywood and he had like a six story house yeah. that he, he they had to come to him. Yes. You know, because yeah. if they wanted him. And yeah, I believe that's what he did. And now it because of COVID and all, um, I mean there were actors that had home studios, but it wasn't the norm. Right. Because, you know, it was an interview I have on a tape. Uh he, he interviewed with Jim Easton on KGO Radio in San Francisco, and this is about a year or two before he died. Yeah, he says, no, I love it here in Sausalito. That's where I live. You know, (laughs) I'm not going anywhere. You know, it's like the only time he flies to L.A., which nowadays he wouldn't even have to do that, is to sign a contract. You know, (laughs) that's the only time he ever flew. Otherwise, you know, he'd stay in the Bay Area because he loved it. So, you know. Arthur Rankin lived in Bermuda for uh, for the pretty much the rest of his life and was known as a, a Bermudan in the community, you know, mm-hmm. listed in the paper as, you know, fellow Bermudan hmm. uh, Arthur Rankin. So that's what his residence was. But they, the way they had the operation, it, it was, they could do things like they could be that way. Cause he, and, and they were like Rogers and Hammerstein or the Shermans, uh, Rankin and Bass were very different personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it was one didn't, they didn't necessarily step f- over each other and bass was more reserved and rankin was the front man the way hannah was the production guy and barbaro was the the salesman mm-hmm. but i guess they got along enough to work together for 20 oh plus yeah years, they, they, know, in so. fact bass was there all the way through um uh, believe like may have been life and adventures may have been the last one and um a gentleman named Peter Bacalian, who was, who worked for Arthur Rankin for, you know, all the way up to Santa Baby, uh, said, Mm -hmm. and that's a special that doesn't get mentioned often. And that's really the last special that had Rankin Bass on it. And you can, there's a soundtrack album and there it's on DVD with Eartha Kitt and Gregory Mm -hmm. Hines. Um, That has, and the Paul Coker look. So that's a pretty cool Mm -hmm. special. Um, Peter said that, they they artistically had differences because bass loved uh, life and adventures of santa claus and that was moving in more of a serious hobbit-like tone because they were starting right. to do these more 
epic adventure things like right. the uh the flight of dragons and excellent another one flight of dragons yeah. with john ritter and mm -hmm. um and oh gosh uh, we did the last Gordon. unicorn La last oh. unicorn is a man siskel and ebert loved last unicorn mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They even loved the way the the script. They said the language of this film is so, mm -hmm. and they got all excited like little kids. Uh, they gave great <laughs> reviews, and Jimmy Webb wrote this beautiful score for it. Mm -hmm. You know, they they didn't have the the ability like a lot of studios did. And Hanna Barbera really didn't either. Either even though Hanna Barbera did get Paramount or Columbia behind them unless they were they had the Disney name the Disney name was above the title and it didn't matter mm -hmm. it didn't matter if there were celebrities it was nice but it was the Disney name but if you weren't uh it was hard to get the the notice and the publicity they mm -hmm. weren't household Hanna-Barbera wasn't a household name until the 70s um right. Rick and Bass wasn't until probably years after 80s and 90s because mm -hmm each generation embrace the specials they never really go out of style even the minor ones the small mm -hmm. i don't even kind of call them minor but the short ones like i love leprechauns christmas gold <laughs> and and the one the white the first white christmas star the first christmas snow with angela yeah. lansbury doing that that version of white christmas that's so beautiful yeah uh, there's a long the, Christmas donkey. <laughs> <laughs> there's certain ones that when I saw them first run, I was like, really? And then years later, I'd see it again. Jack Frost comes to mind and I go, that's not a bad special. What am I talking about? Jack Frost is a, is a, is a almost a, a more of a drama because yeah. it's so sad because it, yeah. it's yeah. unrequited love. It's, it, it can't happen uh, that it's, it's, and and you know it really bugged me that they weren't winning Emmys for these things, but yeah. they were in New York and mm -hmm. Dr. Seuss and Peanuts and the things <laughs> that let's face it you you don't necessarily vote for who you like, uh, vote for your friends, but you certainly think your friends do fantastic work, and mm -hmm. so you're going. And the only special they were even nominated for, I think, was Little Drummer Boy, book two. Wow, I never yeah, knew that. Hobbit I thought wasn't nominated, not even wow. nominated to quote Steve Lawrence and Sammy Davis. <laughs> not even nominated. Now, was it because wanted... they weren't submitted, or it just was overlooked completely? You know, well, okay. they, it was. It was a. I won't get into awards and the various <laughs> the, the the merit or lack of with awards. Whether you know they're here to stay, but it is a community um supported thing and they were not part of it's just like we talk about paul freeze and june foray and mel blank and Dawes butler they were hollywood voices hardly anyone talks about lionel wilson and peter fernandez and oh bob mcfadden you right. know the voice we grew up with and didn't know but yep. they were new york based and the new york voice industry is more commercials you know mm -hmm. stage actors soap actors they weren't as visible to us mm -hmm. but they were none they were nonetheless talented and versatile and kind of ubiquitous for a while as well it's just it's just two sides of the country i think that has a lot to do with it um, just like broadway and hollywood are kind of separate and yet connected you know mm -hmm. thank you for listening and thank you greg airbar for being my special guest Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 241 will be coming soon with part two of this interview. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. <laughs>